So today is the topic of fear. Fear is a very real thing. Fear is something that we all experience. There's fear of the coronavirus, fear of what our governor is doing and what may happen to the state that we're living in, fear of elections, or possibly it's an uncertain future of what's going to happen with my job, what's going to happen with my parents, what's going to happen with my friends, am I going to get into the school that I want to get into? Fear is a real experience, and it's something that we have to look at. And there's a place where this fear can be toxic, where this fear can really get a hold of us, where this fear can really uh, keep us from living well. And that's what we don't want to see. And so today in this conversation, what we are going to be trying to help you do and help you see is how Christianity really is the answer to fear, of how you can go from this place of toxic fear, which we'll talk about, and into this place of holy fear. And so uh, that is going to be the topic of today's conversation. My name is Ryan Pauly, and if you don't know, this is a weekly live stream where we focus on issues related to the Christianity and the Christian worldview, focusing on apologetics and worldview, helping you understand deeply the Christian faith, know how to respond to objections, and then also know how to live well in the world we live in. And so that is the show. And so today we're talking about the topic of fear and how to live well. And joining me, my guest today is probably, not probably, is the most special guest that I've ever had. In fact, I owe my existence to my guest, <laughs> and it's not God. Joining me is my mom, Rose. Mom! <laughs> it's good. I always talk to you on Skype, but it's good to see you here with me on the show. Uh, thank you. It's an honor to be here and an honor to be on your program. I just wanted to say I am uh, so blessed by what you're doing. And I've listened to most all of your podcasts. The artists and, and the authors that you've had on the speakers have taught me so much. And it has enriched my life. It has broadened my worldview. Um, I just feel very honored to even be a part of what you're doing and very proud of you, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you, mom. Uh, and this is obviously, uh, this is not uh, her first time on the show. If you're interested, this is actually fourth time. This is the fourth time she's been on, uh, the, the first time on YouTube. Uh, but the podcast has been going for about four years before really the YouTube channel started. And so she joined me th for three different podcast episodes. You can find that in the description below, talking about how unforgiveness harms us, talking about how to have healthy relationships, and talking about how God can use evil for good. And so um, so let's just kind of jump in. This topic of fear, uh, you talk about this idea of toxic fear and holy fear. So maybe let's get some definitions out of the way. We'll talk about some examples of how you, I think, are, are very qualified. I guess I didn't tell people really why you're here. I think you're very qualified to have this conversation for a few reasons. One is that you are a breast diagnostic nurse where you walk with women daily who have the, the fear of, of being diagnosed with breast cancer and, and going through the treatment of that, as well as a pastor for 14 years and doing counseling with abuse and trauma and women and, and also teaching. And then also uh, your story, which you've shared and which we're going to talk about a little bit that is in uh, the book here, Desperate Hope, uh, which is a story of a man coming in the house, holding you at knife point, uh, attempted assault, and, and what that could have done to you of living in fear of what could happen to your life. And so really going through things yourself, as well as helping many people go through uh, difficult, traumatic experiences. And so I think it's so you're so qualified for it. And so maybe, so we'll start with some definitions. We'll talk about some examples, some, some ways in which fear really grabs us, and then moving into the solution of how Christianity really is the answer to overcoming 
fear and living well, a life that God has called us to live. So maybe start off, you, you, we're going to talk about this idea of toxic fear. How do you define the difference between a toxic fear and holy fear? That's a great question. And I guess just to back up a little bit, you are so right. And I think a part of my whole journey has been intersecting with fear in a lot of different ways, working through my own fears, working through my own um, paralyzing place of fear that could have been possible had I not worked through that and learned things. And just wanting to share my own journey has been a big part of that. Uh, as you talked about the experience in my life that happened in 1995, where a man entered my home and held a knife to my neck. And if it wasn't for the intervention of God, I know I wouldn't be talking with you today. I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be able to experience all the joys that have come since then of children growing up and now grandchildren coming into the mix. And so I'm so grateful to God for what what he did in in intersecting that event that day and ultimately saving my life. Um, that story is written in the book, Desperate Hope, and it's a remarkable story. And with that knife at my neck, I began to pray that day, and I was able to escape out of my house and ended up on the curb in front. And when I was out there, I looked, um, the man that had been in my house had followed me out to the curb sat down, believe it or not, beside me. And I looked over at him and said, I got to pray for you, but I don't even remember what your name is. What is your name? And he told me, and I remember praying for him that day. And that launched an entire journey of a story that not only God saved my life, but that man went to prison. And during that time in prison, uh, he had a life encounter with God. And he made God his uh, Lord of his life. And since then, there's been a whole journey that he's gone on dealing with uh, toxic fear. And so that's a big part of the story that was launched that day. And for me, not only dealing with the fear of the moment and the crisis of the moment, but dealing with all the aftermath of how you walk through life without this paralyzing fear. So going to your question, difference between toxic fear and holy fear. Well, maybe before we jump into the definition here really quick, I, because I do want to just point people to what you just talked about. Um, I have some 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 resources down below. So there is a short like five minute video in the description below uh, that I think titled uh, Desperate Hope Promo Video or something like that. And uh, it, it is about a five minutes where my mom kind of briefly shares the story. But at the end, Matt is in the video. The, the man who held the knife to her neck is in the video as well and talking about really the hope that comes from this. And then also uh, just to, because we want to get the story out there, uh, the book Desperate Hope, An Unusual Journey from Freedom from Addiction and victimhood. Um, the link is on for Amazon. It's like 15 bucks on Amazon, but uh, I happen to know the author very well. And um, I, I worked a deal to where she signed uh, quite a few books for me. There you go. So if uh, so, for if you just cover shipping and handling, uh, I'm not making necessarily money off this, cover shipping and handling, pay $5 minimum donation on Patreon. So if you go below, go to Patreon. If you get five bucks, uh, I'll send you a book uh, that's signed by her. So um, Again, just wanting to get that story out there. So she hooked us up with a bunch of free books uh, to 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 share kind of what she just talked about. And there's more information you can see below. Okay, so a little promotion there for you, Mom. Um, <laughs> say on that book is that it, it really is a story of 
uh, both uh, a man named Matt and me. A story of both of our stories woven side by side of how God really did save both of our lives, um, rescued us from fear, addiction, um, this place of victimhood that often going through a difficult experience can bring you into, that can slide you into a place of fear. And so that is an incredible story, again, written like a novel, but it's true. And it's really a story of God and what he's able to do in a human life, uh, no matter what we go through and no matter what we've done. Um, God is able to intersect and make a difference. And so I want to highly recommend it as well, because I love it when that story gets out there. Um, God and it's, and it's not just her side of the story. It is both Matt and her side of the story woven together as Matt helped to share his side. And it was written into this book as well. So it's, it's awesome. I highly recommend it. So, um, all right. So toxic fear, holy fear, kind of help us uh, understand the the terms that we're going to be using throughout this uh, show. I think it's important when we're talking about fear to define the term. And there can be very real fears. Uh, I heard somebody once uh, use the acronym, you know, F-E-A-R. Fear is false evidence appearing real. And I thought sometimes it might be. Sometimes it is false evidence and it just appears real. It it really isn't real. But, But not always. And often it is very real fear. And, uh, you know, this is last week. We experienced this in Colorado. We've had fires sweeping through our mountains. I have friends that are up there, you know, fighting for their homes. And one in particular that spent an evening, her fiance was up there, you know, fighting to keep the fire away from the perimeter as flames were lapping on his house. That's a very real fear. There was a photo uh, of Estes Park that was posted that showed the whole city of Estes Park. And in the distance, the entire ridge of mountains was covered with flames as they were coming over Rocky Mountain National Park into Estes. That's real fear. And it's very important to identify it as such, not to minimize it, uh, but to really say this, this is something that's real. What needs to happen? And what happened last week in Estes Park is that people evacuated and they did it well. And, and uh, police officers and Others were helping them escort them out of the mountains, but there was mass evacuation of very real fear. Um, We have real fears today, and you mentioned many of them when you talked at first. You know, maybe uh, I have a fear of the pandemic. What's going to happen? What, you know, what if I step outside of my house? Is something going to come and take my life? Um, What if I've lost my job? What about income? How am I going to support my family? Um, Fear of what's going to happen to those that I love, my parents, my children. Um, Our world is is wracked in fear right now. And a lot of it has to do with the unknown. What does the future hold? This world feels like it's spiraling out of control. There's chaos at every hand. Uh, We see violence every time we turn on the news. There's rioting and there's there's death. There's there's a whole election going on right now, and there's rampant fear. What's going to happen? Who's going to be in office? How is that going to play out? And so fear is real, and there's very fears. I think there's also another kind of fear. There's a, various kinds of fear, and another is is good fear. 
and fear can be good. And I think about uh, a year ago, my little granddaughter, who's now two and a half, when she was one, she came to Colorado and I had the honor of watching her, my husband and and Steve and I, um, watching her and my uh, grandson, who was five, for a week. And there was a big difference between watching my five-year-old grandson at the time and my, two, my one-year-old granddaughter because she had all kinds of energy and all kinds of motion, but she had no fear, no good natural kind of fear. And so I was hovering over her the entire week. <laughs> I didn't even stand up straight for a week. <laughs> oh, and I think she had, uh, she, has a, she had an extra boost of energy than most one-year-olds had at that time. <laughs> Yeah, and she still does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, to keep her from stepping off a cliff, from walking into a swimming pool, you know, from from just putting herself in precarious positions was was a constant effort on my part. And so we appreciate that good fear, that natural fear that keeps us from doing stupid things that would, you know, ultimately destroy our lives. And damage us. So there is good fear in the mix. I think there's also, um, you know, irrational fears, or maybe there's things that are silly fears. And Would you I, call my like fear of heights a silly irrational fear or fear of spiders? <laughs> fear of spiders. Well, and and <laughs> I have one too, and that is, um, I'm I am very afraid of a little mouse that's this big. <laughs> of him climbing up my leg and and you know the story well but when we were a, a young boy we were all in the living room opening christmas presents and and we had a cat that you and your brothers affectionately named lawnmower and so lawnmower wanted to bring his present too and so he showed up with a live mouse and uh, he as we all screamed he panicked and dropped the mouse who then went frantically running all through the, the living room and we had full grown adults standing on the couch pillows on top <laughs> screaming bloody murder and a very hysterical mouse and so uh. those are fears that are real but they're probably silly in the big scheme of things a mouse probably isn't going to do much damage other than i'm deathly afraid of them <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so um, what is the problem? Maybe let's start with this. What's the problem with living with some of these irrational fears? Like, so what that I'm uh, afraid of mice? Um, that seems like a minor one. But, you know, how, how can that, I guess, grow uh, when they, the fear is not just a mouse, but it becomes something more important, but it's still irrational? Kind of what's the problem with living with these irrational fears? And I think that's a great question. And irrational fear um, kind of leads into what I would term toxic fear. It's the nurse in me that talks about toxicity. Toxic fear, something toxic is something that is taken into the body that does damage, that uh, hinders our ability to healthy living, that paralyzes us, um, devastates us, and ultimately could, could kill us. And so a toxic fear is something that isn't necessarily the fear of the moment, like even I experienced when there was a knife to my neck. That is not what I would call toxic fear. But toxic fear could play out of that and could come out of that in the sense of 
Toxic fear is something that lingers, that sinks into the very core of who I am, that just starts controlling me and taking on a life of its own within me. For instance, if after this event happened in my house, if I was just, you know, homebound and paralyzed and unable to leave, if I was unable to carry on with life because I was so confined in a fear that was, you know, maybe an unknown. Maybe this is going to happen again. You know, um, there is a lot of chronic anxiety and toxic fear in our world right now, where there is just a blanket of fear that is just consuming people. They can't see past it. And even if it's related to a real fear, it still can affect a person's very being, their physical being. And even though it's related to something that's real, it can come and do physical damage on your whole, on your health. And so it has to be dealt with rightly. And, and we can talk about how to do that. Um, I was interested because I put together some things that we know physically uh, that toxic fear um, creates. And, and I, I should mention too, you talked about irrational fear. So a lot of times toxic fear is related to something that's irrational. Um, I fear that something's going to happen that really has no chance of even happening, but I am yeah. consumed with this fear. And, and just a side note on that, I think a lot of times we can teach uh, our children to, to have those kinds of irrational fears or even mm. those, uh, paralyzing, crippling fears by just the way that we as parents deal with the challenges in our lives. So right now we're facing a crazy world. We can be passing on fear to children. Some of it's for real, regarding real things, some of it's irrational. But physical, fear or chronic anxiety weakens our immune system. It can cause cardiovascular damage, gastrointestinal problems like ulcers, irritable bowel syndrome. Fear can lead to accelerated aging. It can also lead to premature death. That, that's serious stuff. Yeah. Emotional think about this fear can interrupt the processes in our brain that allow us to think clearly about stuff. You know, we see panic taking place often where people just start doing irrational things. But even lingering fear or this, this toxic place of just living in a fear that's not dealt with can actually change the brain. And this is scientifically proven so that there, there's a hard, uh, more difficult time reflecting before acting where it impacts our thinking, our decision making. Um, we can have intense emotions like outbursts of anger. We can have impulsive reactions, violence, all this is rooted in an ultimate place of fear that is not addressed. Yeah. So you kind of make the reference, uh, you kind of went on the, the point, I'm, I'm curious uh, of how parents can often teach their kids fear by how they're responding and the kids really watching their parents and seeing what their parents do. And so I'm curious just kind of as a, as maybe a side point, but as, as advice to parents where they're dealing with real fears and irrational fears, um, how much do you let your kids into? Uh, do you do you shield them from all of your fears? Do you do you show them some of the the true fears so that they recognize it's okay to have fear of real things? How as a parent would you go about exposing your kids to the fears that you as as a parent have? I think that's a fantastic question. You know, I think, and that leads into kind of our next place we're going to talk, but it has to do with worldview. And so, as a parent. 
if I have a worldview that I'm allowed to tap into that really does address my fears, I'm able to not only demonstrate and show my child, this is how you can respond when you come across something that could make you very afraid. You can tap into a place of, and when we talk about the Christian worldview, that there is a God. There is a God who is over and above, who is sovereign over all creation, that, that really ultimately has everything under control. There is a God that sees you, that knows you, that loves you, and he's got you in his hands. And even though you see things that you don't understand and there's things crashing all around you, there's a bigger reality, there's a greater perspective that you can have. And you're demonstrating that as a parent because you're landing in a place of ultimately trusting that God is going to take you through. And by doing that yourself, you're demonstrating it, but you're also teaching that. You're also teaching that to your children. You're teaching a worldview that deals with their fears. If you are, if you have a worldview that God is not a part of, you know, where, where do you go with your fears? Where, who do you trust? Am I going to trust, you know, in, in, a, in the government to take care of the things that need to be taken care of in my life? Am I going to be trusting in, you know, some person, some human that's that's fallible? Am I going to be trusting in my own abilities to, to manage or control? Am I going to be uh, am I going to be looking to. Am I going to be looking to God um, ultimately as a place of trust? And when I do that, it is demonstrating that there is something greater than me that has control. There's something greater than me that's orchestrating the things about me. And that ultimately nothing happens to me that doesn't go through his permission. Okay. That changes how I act to my child. And I yeah. can teach my child those things. Well, I think that's such an important point because I, I think that so much of the fear that we see in our culture is driven by this idea of that there is no God above us who is in control. And, and really it does come down to, to me, it comes down to the government. And that's how we put so much emphasis on if this happens with the Supreme Court, if this happens with the election, if this happens with my governor, oh my goodness, we're going to, the end of the world is coming, coming. And there's truth to this idea that uh, p politicians and 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 influential people make big decisions that affect us, and so I'm not saying that. But when when that is the kind of the highest authority that you have, there's so much more weight. There's such a higher burden that goes on those people uh, to to solve our problems or to solve it ourselves. And I'm powerless a lot of times to solve a lot of my issues. And so, what else do I have to live in fear? And so, I think that is kind of one of the explanations for why so much. Why fear is so rampant, I think, in today's culture. On the flip side, though, I'm curious because from a Christian perspective, we understand God is sovereign. God is in control. He is powerful. He is able to take care of us. Uh, we go to him when we are in need. We are more valuable, as Matthew chapter 10 says, than, than, than the sparrows. And he takes care of them and he will take care of us. And, and so why is it then do you think that Christians fear? I, I think there's multiple reasons why Christians fear, and it's not because they're not a good Christian or they're not, you know, connected with God. But I have to tell you, we live in a culture where we're getting a steady diet of media. And what media doesn't give to us is perspective. Media gives us information, but we don't get perspective. 
And so when all we're getting is a steady diet of media, what we're hearing is all of the ill that's going on, all of the devastation that's happening, all the anecdotal stories of people that have gone through difficult things. And when that's our steady diet, I think it starts affecting, no matter how Christian we are, it starts affecting how we think. It affects how we look at the world. And I believe that there is a call to those that are Christians to start filling our lives with the things that are giving us ultimate perspective, ultimate reality, and that is the Word of God. God says over and over again, you know, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And there's a reason why he says don't be afraid. And he usually tells us in his word, here's why. Almost every time when he says don't be afraid, he'll say, here's why. I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll go before you. I'm going to fight your battle for you. I'm I'm there. And so, you know, there's even times when in his word he says, you know, don't be afraid because God says. And so we're talking about, you know, God making promises and scripture speaking to us. And and so feeding ourselves on a diet of God's word helps to bring perspective to what's going on around us. Um, I think also reading good works and good books. I, I have a whole stack of things that I've been reading lately. And, and there are stories of other people that have gone through difficult things, that they've overcome fear. Stories of people that are navigating through life that's chaotic, life that's difficult, life that has suffering and things we don't understand. And they're talking about how they themselves drew into God and drew into who he is to be able to walk through that having perspective yeah i think that's so wonderful um what what comes to mind as as we talk about this is this perspective changes things and and how we see it but i feel like there's there's a maybe a a gray area and I, and I think about your job right now as a breast diagnostic nurse and, and walking alongside women on a, on a daily basis uh, who are finding out that they've been diagnosed with can- breast cancer and, and what uh, they can do about that. And, and I feel like there's a fine line between like there's a real fear there, like there's cancer, it's real, like this is serious, uh, this has an effect on your life, on your family, on this will this will change things. But then I feel like there's also like it can become an irrational fear where maybe it gets taken too far. So I'm curious where we talked about at the beginning of these toxic fears, like I'm, I'm afraid of something that's completely irrational versus I'm complete afraid of something that is rational. Here's a fire about to burn my house down versus uh, where is that kind of maybe that, that, that line between where something real can turn into unreal and kind of bringing it back to a healthy perspective of the situation we're going through, if that makes sense. It does. There's things that I do in my job every day, and I've been working for four and a half years as a breast diagnostic nurse, and um, the majority of that time has been in a role called a navigator, where I'm actually the one that calls the patient, notifies them that they do have breast cancer, and then it's up to me then to work through that with them, talk about that with them, and then help them move into the next phase of what do we need to do to take care of this. And there's some things that I've learned in my job that I think are applicable to life in general. And this is huge. This is this is the first thing that I learned. You have to base your life on truth. Hmm. 
have to base your whole life and truth. And in the medical world, I have to know and the patient has to know that we are basing what we say on truth. For instance, if a woman has a breast biopsy, which we do daily, and it comes back and she say, let's say she has some cancer cells in there, uh, but it comes back um, saying that nope, nothing's wrong. Or maybe it comes back saying it's cancer, but I interpret it to her and say, nope, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. She might feel great about that. She might feel happy about that. She might call all of her friends and family and announce the good news. But it's empty because it's not true. Well, I think it's important to, to maybe stop there in just a moment because that's often kind of like this like ethical dilemma, this like problem that people bring up of like, do you lie to them and say you don't have cancer? Because that's what makes them happy. But ultimately, what you're giving them is an empty, just emptiness. You're not giving them truth, and, and that's not the way to go. And that's exactly right. So I've had patients that have said to me in the past, oh, you're just telling me that to, so I feel better. And my answer is, I don't say anything so that you'll feel better. My job is to get what's most true and what's most accurate, that information to you, because only when you have true and accurate information are you able to make wise and good decisions about what to do from here on out. Yeah. Because, again, no matter how great somebody feels, if their life is not based on what is true and accurate, it means nothing. And this is a great example of that place. So the first thing is we got to make sure it's true. If they don't have cancer, we say no. If they do, we <laughs> talk about it. And and I, I work with the greatest of physicians that absolutely go over and above to make sure that their diagnosis is accurate. They know how important it is. They are fantastic. I would go to them myself because I see how conscientious they are to get to what is true. And I think that's a great question in all of life. Is that true? What is true? The second part that I think that I do in my job that is so critical to all of life is I create perspective. So in, in times past, when a woman heard the word breast cancer, you know, it was a death sentence. You know, that, that was something that caused great fear. And so many women are coming in to um, our facility and, and the fear is huge. And so if they have um, a diagnosis where uh, breast cancer is, is their diagnosis, you know, they immediately jump to, I'm going to die. And so it's up to me to give this thing perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's so important because what I say to them is, and first of all, I never say you have breast cancer because I don't want them to have this become an identity. I'm breast cancer. What I say is the pathology report has come back and we've seen uh, cancer cells in that pathology. And this is the kind of cells they are. In that way, it distances this cancer from who they are as a person, hmm. identity, and they're able to see it as an enemy that needs to be removed. What do we need to do to take care of this rather than this is a fault with who I am? Hmm. So I'm very careful about the language that I use. We saw some cancer cells. 
This is the type of cell they are. But then I'll put it in perspective. You know, this this is only four millimeters. This is only eight millimeters. Anything less than 10 millimeters, we consider very, very small. And if this is all that we find in your breast, then usually all that's necessary is that we would have this removed surgically, maybe some radiation. A lot of times women don't even have to have chemo if it's small. But this is something that can be taken care of and removed in a one-day outpatient surgery. And right now, you know, we don't see it in your nodes. That's good news. And, you know, I want you to know that women are doing well with the treatment and they are, we're able to remove these cells and women are back on their feet and they're doing well. I'll put it in perspective and I'll be as accurate as I can. I'm not making up things just to make somebody feel better or nor am I adding things just to increase fear to manipulate them, get them to do something to do. Yeah is what is accurate, what's true, how can we put this in right perspective, and then the next thing is this is what we need to do to, to take care of this. And over and over again, I have women saying, what do I need to do? And thank you so much for being here to help me take yeah. it in the next phase. Yeah. So I think those are some really wonderful practical steps uh, with something like, like breast cancer, where it's they, they have it or they don't, and you have it, and here's how we walk through it, and here's the language that, that we use. How would you go about helping someone kind of the practical day-to-day steps that uh, with a fear that there's not a agreement over. So thinking about the pandemic, right? We, we right now have, have people that the pandemic is serious, the pandemic is not serious, that people are dying, that, that all these things are happening. And there's such a political argument where even among Christians, we are not in agreement about how serious this actually is. So how do we then go about providing perspective and saying what's true when we maybe don't know exactly what is true because... There's so much disagreement. And again, I want to make sure everyone hears about I'm not saying because there's disagreement, there is no truth. So we can find out that truth. But when it's, it's a lot more difficult, I guess, rather than a clear test result, boom, you have these cancer cells in your body versus something that's more difficult. How do we step through something like the pandemic? I think that's so pertinent for right now. And that's a question I hear regularly. And being in the medical world, we are dealing with this daily. And I think that there's things that I can say um, um, wholeheartedly, and that is, I don't believe we should be afraid of COVID. And that doesn't mean that, that we minimize it. That doesn't mean we deny it exists. It means nothing like that, just like it doesn't mean we minimize the fact that someone has breast cancer. But I don't believe we should be afraid of it, but I believe we should be wise in it. And here's the reasons why I don't believe we should be afraid. First of all, we are learning more and more about what this is. It's not something that's mysterious, that's just hanging like a fog over everybody in every place at all times. Um, when it first arrived in the United States, we didn't know what to expect. And so even where I work, they shut down our breast center. And, um, you know, it was later on that we reopened, realizing people needed to come and get treatment for other kinds of illnesses that were going on. But I believe putting it in perspective, and now that we've learned more about it is important. We know that it's, it is communicated with droplets. And so if somebody who's infected has droplets um, that are communicated and we get them inside of us, um, then that's how it's communicated. So we take appropriate measures um, to try to minimize that. 
Um, there are there are things that I think are are good. You know, we we wash our hands, we um, we clean surfaces, um, we we don't go out when we're sick, when when we're not feeling well. Um, you know, we we don't go close to people that are are sick. We try not to gather in, in close groups of people at this point, and without having some kind of mask on. And so, it's masks, and I wear a mask all day long in my job. And so I'm thankful when I come home and I don't have to wear it. Um, but there's some things that I think contribute to not being afraid. One is we have natural immunities that our bodies have. And I think that sometimes we uh, don't even realize how valuable our natural immunities are. Um, when I uh, reinstated my nursing license about five Years ago, I uh, started we had to go through a big thick book of med surge nursing and, and part of it was on the immune system. And I tell you, if there's a, a reason for believing in, in a God, it's looking at the intricacies of the mm. immune system and all the cells that have to work together to identify and consume a, you know a virus or an antigen that comes, a bacteria virus, some kind of threat consuming that they all have all these cells have their own jobs to do and and making antibodies and then recognizing years down the road when the same thing comes back and these cells have memory to remember so that they can attack these these antigens we have an immune system i think also i think we have to recognize that Right now, as if we're going to look at the big picture of things, um, you know, 90, what is it, 98 percent of people will have full recovery that get COVID. Um, right now in Colorado, we're giving uh, tests to people and about 5 percent of those will actually uh, have a positive COVID. That means 95% of people, you know, go in for their COVID tests and it's negative. Um, of those 5% that have them, you know, 98% of those will have full recovery. And um, now that we're learning more and more, we are learning how to treat this virus, how to not only keep ourselves from being exposed to it by being careful, but how to treat it so that that and things that we're using so that we're seeing people doing much better. So I think, again, we I'm in a world where we, we care for very sick people. Um, but when you look at, at just pure numbers, when you look at, you know, 665,000 people die from heart attack every year. You know, we, we look at 600,000 people that are dying every year from cancers. If we just focused on one thing and blasted the media with it, we would have people panicking no matter what it is that we're focusing on. So again, it's taking that step back. This is something that's real. This is what I can do responsibly and wisely to prevent it. This is putting it in a perspective so I don't have to live in this paralyzed fear while I'm being wise. A thought that came to my mind uh, when you mentioned, well, here's how many people die of heart attacks. It's like, well, but that's maybe not as easy to prevent versus, um, you know, uh, COVID is easier to prevent. And so I think that there's, you know, people go, well, but there's not anything we can do here. We can do stuff here and that's why we should be doing it. But I think that's also what maybe possibly drives more of the fear is that because there's the hundred, you know, there's 20 steps of what could be done to minimize the chance of at, at getting infected versus 
a heart attack, it's like, you know, eat healthy, stay in shape. And, and other than that, maybe I'm just ignorant when it comes to heart attacks. There's not as, as, as much of maybe, if that makes sense, of the steps to take that there's not as much to be fearful about. And, and a lot of that is perspective. Because the truth is we do in the medical world a lot of education on what people can do to uh, lower their risk factor for, for heart attack. Hmm. Diet, exercise, a lot of things um, that, you know, actually um, decrease your risk. And um, we have things right now that can decrease our risk for any kind of disease, whether it's a bacterial or viral driven disease. Our immune system can uh, we can keep that immune system healthy. And I know there's lots of ways people have compromised immune systems, but a person can make sure they're getting good sleep. A person can make sure they're getting adequate water, that they're out there getting some sun sunshine on their bodies and fresh air. There's so many things that we do that, that actually boosts our immune system. And, and here's one. Hmm. I think that's helpful because I think, again, like the perspective of like, well, this, it's preventable. These are not preventable, but we don't think about the, the habits of our life that we have gotten into that do raise the risk of certain diseases or certain issues uh, that could happen. And that, again, we don't want to bring this up to say, wow, look at all the things that need to be done and allow that to become a burden and a fear. But there is a, a sense of responsible living. So I'm curious kind of what you say with that of like, when you really think about it, man, now there becomes this huge long list. I need to do this. And I need to do this. And all these things that I got to do in order to have this perfect way of healthy living is if we put you know, maybe healthy living as a standard or something. How do we then live with that to be responsible with how God has created us to be wise but not to live with this 100-point checklist of the things we have to do every day so that we get all the right boxes checked so that we don't get any of the possible uh, diseases or, or issues that may come up in the future. Right, because there's definitely a germophobia. <laughs> and I had a friend once that was in that place. She recognized there were real germs out there, and uh, she was uh, determined not to get anything. And so she actually got into a very phobic place. She was washing her hands all day long. Uh, she wouldn't go around any people. She always had, this was years ago before we even had COVID. Uh, she couldn't live life. And I remember she went on a mission trip with us and she had been in counseling for this germophobia. And we were working with her to help her be able to step into this world of going to Mexico on a mission trip and being able to enjoy life and, 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 and serve and minister without being paralyzed and crippled. And so there really has to be that place of, of healthiness because our lives, we need socialization, mm -hmm. communication with people. I have parents who are in their 80s, uh, who live close by, we make a point to go visit with them. You know, I'm not going to go if, I have, if I'm sick, if I got a cough or a fever. But when I know that I'm healthy, we go over and we spend time because that is an essential part of life as well. People are lonely. They're dying of loneliness. I'm seeing my patients coming in. They've been confined in their houses since March. And, you know, they're afraid to come out. And so we've got to start working through this balance of life that really does understand perspective, 
the natural uh, things that we have to our advantage, our immune system, and the things we can do to build up that immune system, and then being able to be wise but not being extreme where we rob ourselves of, of life and livelihood. Yeah, I think that's good. Now, I want to kind of maybe switch to another maybe issue, kind of working through some of the things that people may be going through, whether it's sickness and now uh, coronavirus. Um, what about like job loss? If, if someone comes to you and is either f is maybe has lost their job and they are fearful of what am I, what am I going to do? How am I going to support my family? How how would, how could you kind of walk with someone through that that real fear of how do I support my family without a, without work? Well, that is that is a real fear. And I think, um, you know, probably in my past during years, dealing more with the financial, but I'm also dealing with that as, an, as a nurse. And uh, every day I have patients that are coming with, uh, you know, high deductibles or they have medical expenses they can't afford, very similar to the, the issue. And so what we do is we recognize that there are very real resources that are available and it's becoming aware and knowledgeable of resources that are set in place that are catch nets to be able to help people going through difficult times, helping them tap into those resources. If a person is a member of a body of believers in the Christian community and the Christian faith, that is a tremendous gift of people that are wanting to come alongside and, and help and be there and fill in the gaps. And, and I also believe in the power of prayer. I have seen uh, God move mightily in, in ways that he's promised to move. When he says, I will provide for your needs through the riches that are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that he's made. You know, he has never, we never see the, the children of the godly, you know, lacking bread. Those are people that are, are praying, they're trusting God. And then we're seeing God work in amazing ways to release his resources, his abundance. And, you know, just along those lines, you know, our, um, I, uh, as you know, because you started the whole journey with the Dominican Republic, a nonprofit that I'm involved with directing it right now and called Tenacious Love Ministries. And one of our greatest um, um, ministries and, and uh, focuses right now is, is the Haitian refugees down in the Dominican Republic. And they have escaped disease. They've, dis they've escaped uh, poverty, you know, coming out of across uh, into the Dominican Republic from Haiti, and and they've but they've escaped a lot of things by trying to get there, but they are um, without much, and so we have all these little children that are trying to go to school, and they often don't have enough to eat. But what they're doing is many are connected with churches, and these pastors and the people are praying, God help us. We don't have enough to eat. We don't have what we need, but we're looking to you, God. And then God taps on the shoulder of people in Colorado and California and Florida, you know, people all over the world, really, that are now feeling impressed to give. And when, when our check goes down there to help with those food for those Haitian kids, we, we get the response. The Haitians pray and God answers. So there's yeah. Now, I think... I know. So, I mean, so, you know, the first verse I ever memorized that you uh, taught me to memorize is Philippians 4, 4 through 7, but where it talks about, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And I remember being younger and uh, talking with someone dealing with anxiety. And I just went, well, the Bible says, don't be anxious. So don't be anxious. Um, that wasn't a good approach. It didn't help. And <laughs> so I guess here I'm asking uh, from a Christian perspective, how do we come alongside? Uh, and we've shared some of it, but uh, we want to quote scripture, but at the same time, we don't just quote Philippians 4 and say, well, the Bible says don't be anxious, so stop it. Um, it doesn't work that way. I absolutely agree. And I, I think that that's uh, something sometimes we just take for granted, <clears throat> that we're sitting down and listening. We're listening to people. We're acknowledging that these fears are real, that these fears are real to them, even they may be somewhat irrational. And we're listening to them. We're asking questions to understand. We're not just trying to throw band-aids on things, but we're trying to understand people. We're trying to understand their hearts. And in my job as, as a breast nurse, I, I'm asking questions, you know, how are you feeling? Um, you know, do you have a support network? You know, when they say different things like, wow, I heard this story, you know, my friend told me about this, you know, tell me more. And, and then helping them sort through that and say, this is accurate. This is not accurate. This this is not something that that is is in the mix that's accurate. Help them sort through their thinking so that we can help them land on what is true, yeah. what is accurate and right. Because only then can we start dealing with those fears rightly. So that's a great point. That's good. So we've talked about prayer here. We've talked about how the, it's a Christian worldview with God at the center that really is the key to resolving and overcoming fear. But then the question becomes, uh, what about for the unbelievers? Um, are, is it possible for them to overcome fear? Or are they always kind of stuck in this unresolved fear because they don't have God to trust in? I, I think that a non-believer can overcome fear if you talk about, you know, fear of things that are going on in this world. There's a lot of ways that we can bury fear. We can be in denial. Um, you know, we can isolate ourselves from what's going on and kind of insulate. There's just a lot of things we can, we can believe in something that's not, not true. And that can maybe quench the fear in us and we can feel pretty okay about that. But I think if you understand true reality, um, it should bring us all to fear. Because the true reality is that we are humans created by a powerful and holy God, great in mercy, rich in love, um, personal God who is promised to be with us, to guide us and protect us. But there's also a very real reality that is not just a myth called sin. And sin is much like cancer. I can pretend it's not there, but it's it's empty words. I still have a cancer that's eating away at the very core of my body and ultimately can take my life. There's a real reality of sin. And without a savior, without a God that has stepped into my place, taken, you know, his taken his life and given it on my behalf, went to the cross, Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh, walked in my walk in my shoes, sinless, but allowed humans to nail him to a cross so he could take my death and pay the consequence for my sin. I have reason to fear 
because the reality and the truth is there's a judgment. This world is going to come to an end and there will be a judgment. And there is a God who is loving and merciful and gracious, but he's also just and righteous. And that God is going to have a judgment. And for those that don't accept the free gift of Jesus Christ that bore their sin and took their death so they could have life, there's reason to fear because there's an eternal destruction. And that's not, again, a myth, but that's basing my life on what is true. Yeah. I know that, then I also know I don't have to be afraid. Because when I trust in him, I'm walking in a place where I'm covered, I'm held, I'm secured. Yeah, I think that's good. Just yesterday, I, I led my my school on uh, Friday devotions, uh, lunch devotions I lead every Friday, and focusing on God's omniscience and that he knows all things. And really the, the two key components, and I was thinking, and I wasn't, I, I'm just going through a list of God's attributes, and it happened to be that omniscience was yesterday and this interview is today. But I think the two key components that I wanted the students and those who joined to to recognize with God knowing all things is one, he knows what you're going through. He knows what life is about. And he says, and he knows us and he takes care of us. He's not surprised by the events that are going to happen in our future. But the second thing is that God knows our hearts. God knows our intentions. God knows our desires. And as uh, I, we, one of the verses we focus, we focus, I think, on Psalm 139, um, and then we focused on Matthew chapter 10, and then also on Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 4 is the, the point at the very end where it says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. And this idea that those who are in Christ are secure in him, there's a confidence in salvation, there is a burden that is lifted because Christ has paid the price for us. But for those who are not secure, we will give account. God knows what we have done and there has to be justice. We will be held accountable. And so there's a dual aspect, I think, of God's omniscience. There's probably more that we looked at, though, of not fearing of having confidence in, in who God is, and that he knows you, but also uh, this knowledge of what he knows about you and the need for repentance. Yes, the need for repentance, and then the opportunity to step into a place where you can be free from toxic fear. Yeah. I think that's an invitation that's huge. Um, I, I just want to say, I know we're getting close to our end of time, but um, you know the, uh, the movie series, The Chosen, Fantastic did you, series. Did you ever, oh I recommended goodness. it to you, I think. <laughs> you did. So when we were, we were going through the pandemic um, uh, earlier in the year when we were homebound, uh, I went through and watched, every night we'd watch another season. And I just have to say this because I think this is, is just so profound. But uh, this, the, the session or the season or uh, episode, I should say, of Nicodemus, when Nicodemus comes and meets Jesus at night. I've watched that over and over again, and I get tears in my eyes every time because it brilliantly, in my opinion, describes exactly what you just talked about. And that is Nicodemus comes, and he's talking to Jesus, and and he, he doesn't understand, you know, who are you? And and these signs and wonders that you've you've done, I mean, only someone that has God in them could do this. But and then Jesus starts talking about being born again. And he Nicodemus doesn't understand how can that be? 
And Jesus compares it to the wind. And he says, you know, you don't see where the wind is coming from and you don't see where it's going, but you see the evidence of it. That's how it is. Someone that's born of the spirit. And if you're going to enter into this new kingdom that I'm bringing, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus, he's trying to grasp this, is, is the kingdom now. And you see it vividly portrayed in The Chosen. It is fantastic. But what I was going to share with you is what um, they, they added into the movie. And they have Nicodemus and Jesus both quoting Psalms 2. Mm. And this is a perfect picture of, I think, a true reality. And that is Nicodemus, all of a sudden they stand up and he all of a sudden realizes Jesus is who he says he is. I am standing on holy ground. And he does what humans do when they really recognize that they're standing on holy ground. He fell to his knees and he grabs Jesus's hands in the movie and he says, kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his, and he doesn't, he doesn't uh, repeat the next part, but the scripture says, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. And as soon as he does that, Jesus picks him up by his hands, lifts him up, and looks right into his face. And Jesus quotes in the movie the very next verse in Psalms 2, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, hmm. and they embrace how beautiful is the picture, Nicodemus recognizing the holiness, righteousness, and majesty of God falling on his knees, appropriate posture when it comes to someone who is God. Yeah. But then God, his mercy and love and grace, lifting him up and say, come to me, I'll give you refuge from yeah. fear. It's so beautiful. Um it reminds me of kind of the, the one of the things that I wanted to to discuss with you is a common saying, uh, and we didn't talk about this earlier, but I think it fits so well here, is uh, you often hear people say, just let go of what you can't control. And this understanding of, look, like this is so far out of your control. You can't control these sort of things. And so don't worry about it. Don't let it grip you with fear. Just let go. Uh, what would be your response to, because I know you have some thoughts. I'd love for you to share your thoughts on this idea of simply just let it let go of what you can't control. And then kind of the fear and anxiety and those things kind of will go away. You know, it, working in the corporate world, I hear that all the time. I hear that saying, and it's true. You know, what you can't control, release. Let go of what you can't control. And th th those words are true. But I started to think about this. Okay, if I'm talking about some process that my colleague is doing that I can't control, Okay, I can let that go. And that's not a hard thing to do. And I can I cannot have to worry about that. But what if I'm talking about something that really matters to me, something that really is close to my heart? And I am I going to let go? Where, where do I let it go to? To where do I let it go to a black hole somewhere? something that matters to me? Do I let it go to the, the universe? If I don't have a belief in God, where, where am I letting this thing go to? And, and this came into play about a month, well, about three weeks ago, um, our little grandchild born and a few days after birth, uh, struggling um, with, with uh, some uh, Billy Rubin issues and um, praying a lot for this little dude. And all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of the night, getting a text uh, from my middle son, your brother, you know, we're taking our baby to the, the neonatal intensive care unit. 
there was something I cared deeply about. And Steve, my husband, your dad, we both cared deeply about, but we couldn't control it. We couldn't do anything about it. We could just pray. And we came into the living room. We put on some music. It was a song called Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we just started reading scripture and praying over those words of scripture. You know, one of the things we, we prayed over, I know I was looking at the Psalms, you know, um, talking about the benefits of God, you know, trusting in the Lord, um, God being close to the brokenhearted, near to those that are, are hurting in spirit. And, and we were praying over these words of Scripture. And all of a sudden, I truly felt a very real peace take hold. And I know our prayers were joining the prayers of this little dude's parents and grandparents and siblings and, and many others. So real because I realized that that little child I could let go. But I was putting that little child in some mighty hands, powerful hands. And I knew that no matter what happened, there was a God who had this under control. And I could have this. Yeah. And I think that there's something so powerful uh, when we are able to not just let go of something and say, I'm not going to worry about this anymore, uh, but to truly put it in God's hands of how that not only brings us peace, but I think can also heal relationships. And so we started with your story of, of discussing uh, what happened in the house where Matt came in, held a knife to your neck, uh, attempted uh, to assault and, and, and you being able to get away. Um, but obviously, and then you shared at the beginning that there was some restoration there. And I'd love for you to maybe to finish with this time uh, of sharing how releasing Matt, not into this void of just ignoring the event that took place, but releasing that to God, putting Matt in God's hands, uh, was able to heal that relationship where years later, when the book was being written, Matt came over to the house. He sat in the same living room that the event took place. Um, and I don't think you were in fear that this man is now sitting face to face with you again. Yeah. Well, I have to say it was a journey. It was a journey for both of us. Uh, I didn't have any idea of his journey at the time. But for me, it was a journey of walking through fear that felt like it could take hold of me at any time. Because when you've gone through a traumatic event, it tends to just embed itself in the very cells of your body. And it affects how you see life. It affects how you do life. And so this was a journey where I started going through the whole scripture of what God had to say about fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid so many times. And why? And, and learning. It was my own learning of how to trust in his promises, in his word, how to understand more about who he was and, and how I could learn to rest in him and, and give my fears to him, put things in his hands and feel confident doing that. But one thing that I did is put Matt in his hands. And I just would pray every day, God, I just pray wherever he's at, whatever he's doing, that you're you're intersecting his life. I had no idea for, for probably 16 years after this event happened, you know, what had become of him or how things had played out on his end. I knew he had gone to prison and, and then I knew he had at some point gotten out. But all of those prayers were able to put him into God's hands, which allowed me to not only let go of fear, but to let go of unforgiveness, to let go of feeling like I was some kind of a victim, which would have held me in my own prison. And to be able to step into life and to be able to know God was going to take care of that. 16 years later, in a very unique way, and it's written about in the book, 
we reconnected. Very unusual, God-orchestrated way we reconnected. Matt and his wife both came and sat in the same living room where this event had happened 16 years earlier. And Steve and I were both in there, and we got to hear the other side of the story. I was blown away with his side of the story. Mm-hmm. Because fear had been driven, driving him. He had come to my house that day totally hopeless. And when hope is gone, oh, I heard a judge once say, when hope is gone, consequences don't matter. So we can put people in prison. We can do all this penal, you know, have all this penal punishment. But when hope is gone, they don't care. Yeah. Hope is gone for him. He didn't care. He didn't care if he lost his life that day. He didn't care if I lost mine. And so I got to hear the other side of the story. And I got to hear how God intersected his life. And that's the other half of Desperate Hope book. And he was sitting there telling the story. And it turned out that during the year of 2013, uh, we wrote the book. Uh, He would come over and share his story with me. And then I would sit down and write his part. And then I'd send it to him. And he'd say, that's exactly what happened. And here's my husband, Steve, serving us both dinner at the table. And, you know, to think that this book then has been launched of just a powerful story of the reality of God in everyday people's lives and dealing with what we see on a regular basis. And I just talked to him last week and he is thriving. His children, he had ages five, four and two and a half at the time of the event in my house. He had three children and those are their ages. Now they're they're grown up in their 20s. And they are thriving. His marriage is intact. His work is going well. And he told me just a couple weeks ago when I touch base, as I do often with him, he says, I'm doing so great, Rose. He said, in my job, I have a lot of time to just contemplate and meditate. And I get to spend time with God. And as I'm thinking about God and allowing him to just breathe his spirit and his truth and his his presence into my life, I continually to find myself transformed and changed. And I am a different man today. I've had time with God. He said every Thursday night, their children come over and they have family night together. Their family has stayed intact. The children aren't living with fear and and all the detriment that could come from a father that has gone through the journey he has. But there's been restoration. There's been healing and restored hope and lives saved for eternity. Wow. And that is the hope that we live with. And that is a beautiful God that we serve. And as the, the conversation that happened here in the live chat, uh, yeah, but Jackson, the little baby, is is doing well. Um, he's home. He's recovering. Uh, yeah. He's thriving. And so um, we, we serve a God who's in control. We serve a God who knows all things. We serve a God who is all powerful. Uh, and that is one of the most beautiful things. And that is why I want to spend time each week helping us understand who this God is and, 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 who the, and how we live out in this world according to him. And how do we know the truth so that we can stand with confidence that we will be saved uh, and what is going to happen in our lives. So mom, this has been so much fun. You're my favorite guest. And I can say that's objectively true. You are my favorite guest. And um and (laughs) (laughs) thank you for coming on and sharing this um with everybody so honored to be here i can't thank you enough and just love you benches 
All right. Awesome. Thank you, mom. So for all of you uh, watching, um, thank you. I really hope that this has been a blessing to you, that you're encouraged by this. Again, if you uh, we're really encouraged, if you know yourself or know other people who are living in fear, please share this. Please talk to them. Use the things that you've learned here to make a difference in their life as well. Again, I want to remind you of what we talked about at the beginning, uh, that this is available on Amazon for 15 But if you give a $5 donation on Patreon just to cover shipping, uh, I will send you out a copy of the signed book, Desperate Hope, uh, to hear both her story and Matt's story side by side. It's an incredible story. So with that, you can check out other videos, other things that are happening here with the ministry and with the YouTube channel. And um, have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day, a great weekend. God bless, guys. Continue to think deeply about Christianity because Christianity, God, and Jesus are worth thinking about. So live in that hope and confidence. Bye, everybody. I just ask you Won't hesitate to follow Your love will guide my